Hi, it's Lisa. Welcome back to The Healing Path, a podcast created to connect our broken hearts as we journey into honest conversations about grief and loss in our daily lives. Following the deaths of two of my children, I struggled for many years to fill the holes in my heart. I felt like I tried everything. Prayer, meditation, therapy, coaching, reading, journaling, waiting, pegging, you name it. Plus, I tried a few less productive approaches. And after two decades of continuing to grieve, it occurred to me that maybe I'd set the wrong goal. Instead of trying to feel better by filling those painful voids, I've learned that building a life around them is a much more attainable target. Speaking openly about my experience of grief and helping to support others to do the same serve as a regular reminder that we are not alone. Letting all the parts of us have an expression, we may just feel more human and less like robots on autopilot. So I created the Healing Path podcast with the hope that sharing our stories in a mutually compassionate environment will help us to stop working so hard to hide our scars from ourselves and others and start wearing them proudly as the medals of love that they are. So thank you for joining this episode of The Healing Path. Today I'm chatting about a post called The Power of Won't, and that's uh, T. This is shared on the 23rd of February in 2023. We can hardly spend time in the space of self-reflection without learning something about willpower. Its value is stressed and studied. We know from large research projects that willpower has been demonstrated to outpredict quote-unquote success by a factor of two. This means that regardless of IQ, people with impulse control have, in certain research, been found to be twice as likely to achieve mile markers categorized as part of a quote-unquote successful life than those without it. And it's actually great news. Since IQ is not something we can do much about, learning to exercise willpower can level and even tip the playing field to our advantage. Since it has also been proven that willpower can be cultivated, we can increase our own chances of reaching these successful life milestones by firing up the willpower. These studies started in the 1960s, one of which was the famous Stanford Marshmallow Test, and there's a link to that in the post. This longitudinal study looked at young children and gave them a chance to eat one marshmallow now or to wait a certain period of time, like 20 minutes, and get two later instead of one. As the children grew into adults, the study statistically linked things like high SAT scores and decreased obesity with those children who were able to delay their gratification. Some of the early findings from studies like this one have since been overturned, and this is mainly due to unaccounted for variables. But the overall ability to manage our impulses and stay out of compulsive loops of behavior are definitely connected whether in an unofficial or official capacity. Think about it. Bring to mind someone, hopefully even yourself, whom you view as disciplined or successful. 
They don't skate through the challenges of life with one or two good habits. They have healthy habits across the board. They manage the fundamentals of their mental, physical, and emotional needs consistently. You probably know somebody like this. That person always seems to have energy, ideas, and solutions. Their physical bodies are not an impairment to their quality of life. Sure, everyone has things they'd like to do better, but healthy habits lead to healthy lives. So what do habits have to do with willpower anyway? Well, just check out James Clear's New York Times bestseller, Atomic Habits, to learn specifics. That's also linked in the post. But for now, let's just say that the more effectively we layer healthy habits into our regular schedules, the less we have to rely on things like willpower and IQ to keep us on track. Makes sense. If you're trying to make any lasting changes to the way you approach each day, learning more about this fascinating connection between willpower and measurable success is a great way to access the tools that the professionals seem to have down pat. But switching gears a bit, I want to discuss a new term I hadn't heard before today, and that term is won't power. Won't power, just as it sounds, is the opposite of willpower. With won't power, we mobilize our healthy lifestyles on the basis of what we simply won't do. We don't layer in new habits, but instead, we delete the ones that aren't getting us the life experience that we want. Choosing won't power means we simply decide what activities, habits, and behaviors we will not engage in. We make the commitment, and we stick to it. As I've learned about the importance of habits, which emerge from cultivating willpower and won't power, it seems a combination of both is probably most effective at helping us achieve the results that we seek. But I love the play on words and think won't power is actually something that may help us along our healing paths after the death of a loved one. For example, Assuming you are the one in grief, think about some of the activities you've participated in since your loved one died and ask yourself a few discovery questions, such as Have I ever gone to an event that I knew would be upsetting, but I didn't know how to say no? Or Have I ever told someone I was fine when I wasn't? I think we're all guilty of this. Have I ever masked my tears or reactions to something so that others would not be made uncomfortable? Maybe I agreed to have someone visit, even though I was dreading it because I knew it would not be a life-giving experience and I'd probably feel worse afterwards than before the visit. Have I chosen any destructive behaviors that brought me relief from my pain in the short term, but actually made my grief worse? If you answered yes to any of these, you might benefit from getting familiar with this concept of won't power. Because won't power is about making commitments to ourselves and our grief 
about what situations, social events, or habits we will allow ourselves to engage in for the sole purpose of self-preservation. Also known in some circles as boundary setting, many of us just don't have that much practice at declaring, committing, and sticking to something we won't do because it is potentially or obviously harmful. And if we weren't great at setting boundaries when our loved one died, unfortunately, our lives can get more difficult than those of our boundary-setting counterparts when dealing with loss. I'm not saying the grief itself is worse or better, but I am saying that if we have the courage to set standards for what we are not willing to allow in our lives, we have a better shot at feeling empowered. And when we are in grief, we tend to feel anything but empowered. So what does this look like day-to-day after a loved one dies? Here are a few examples of what I mean when I say flexing the won't power muscles. I'm so supportive of my friends who are having a baby, but going to a baby shower is something I won't do. Here's another one. I know everyone's gathering for Mother's Day, but I just want to be alone. So I won't go to the event because it's not good for me. Everyone keeps asking me how I can be so strong, and I have to tell them I am not. I won't lie about how I'm feeling. Here's a couple more. My family has suggested taking a vacation to get away for a bit, but I don't want to get away. I want to sit here and be sad at this moment, so I won't take them up on it. Here's one related to work. My employer has been supportive but is also demanding the same level of engagement that I brought to the role before my loss. If I'm unable to stay in my job because of my grief, I won't force myself to be there. Maybe I will take a leave of absence or explore other positions that are better suited to my healing path. And here's the last one. Compulsive habits like gambling take my mind off of the pain, but I won't choose them because they are not good for me, my healing, or my bank account. So you get the idea. Spend some time cultivating your won't power and see if it helps ease your grieving process. It might sound awkward, but isn't grief pretty darn awkward anyway? You might be able to reclaim some of the power you lost when the death occurred by taking charge of what you are willing and, more importantly, unwilling to expose yourself to now. There's no right or wrong way to do this, but a tip to get started is to check in with yourself before making commitments. You will know what is best for you by the way it feels when you think about agreeing to something. No one, and I mean no one else, will set these boundaries for us, and nor should they. Most times, we have no idea what we need to keep going, and certainly, no one else can decide that for us. Be vigilant in your commitments, but fire up your won't power when considering the beneficial versus destructive nature of your exposure to people, events, and habit choices. We aren't doing ourselves any favors by showing up for others when we are leaving ourselves abandoned on the side of the road. We don't have to be polite at our own demise. 
We simply need to advocate for ourselves respectfully, lovingly, and honestly. So thanks again for joining this episode of the Healing Path Podcast. I have either knowingly or unknowingly stepped into something kind of powerful here. And I'm, I'm grateful to have the chance to talk a little bit after the post to share some of my own experiences in the you know hope that maybe it resonates with you or if something sounds familiar, maybe you can relate. Um, one really difficult thing that I did for myself or to myself um, is after my son Emmanuel died at the hospital where I was working as a pediatric ICU nurse, I went back to work there. I, I took maternity leave and because he died at birth. And I took maternity leave and then I went back and worked in the same like unit with the same people, not just who knew what had happened, but literally physically the delivery um, and postpartum units were right next to where I was working, taking care of sick kids. And as a reminder, I became a pediatric ICU nurse when my daughter Alexis died when she was 13 months and five days old. So I was looking to do something different. And I thought if I just um, could get out of that unit, and I really, I can't blame anybody for this, because like I said, no one's going to set the boundaries. I didn't even talk to anyone about this. I'm not sure how much I even realized that this was harming me, that the, that this was the, the wrong environment for me to be in. In any event, I thought maybe working in the NICU, which I'd also done at the same hospital, but at a different hospital, maybe that would somehow be a good idea. I thought if I can go somewhere where nobody knows me and I can just plug in and take care of these little babies and then you know go home, um, life would be a little bit easier. So I did pursue that. And I did apply for an agency-related position as a NICU nurse at another facility um, a couple months after a couple months after Emmanuel had died. And what ended up happening was I got all the way to the day of the interview, and I, this is literally just exactly what happened. I got all the way to the day of the interview, and it was time for me to leave, and I literally just collapsed in my living room. Like I thought. I was going to vomit. I was dizzy. I guess I was probably having some kind of psychosomatic reaction to what I was doing. But my point is, I knew that that wasn't going to be good for me. And I knew that long before I even tried to do it. But I didn't allow myself to say, I won't do that. I won't expose my broken heart to more sick babies. And unfortunately for me, I didn't. Um, I didn't really understand what was happening. I could clearly understand that this was not going to be a place for me to work. And so I called and I canceled the interview and I apologized and so forth. But unfortunately, I didn't take it to the next step, which was to get out of the nursing bedside environment altogether, which would have probably been a more loving and caring thing to do for myself. So I did continue to work um, for, gosh, at least a couple more years at that hospital that I had had my son at and, and lost him. So that's kind of a work example of how we can get into trouble by not setting boundaries. And I just, again, want to stress the fact that this is not on anyone else. No one told me that I had to do that. No one told me 
said, you know, you have to keep your job or it was just the pressure that I was putting on myself to kind of maintain normalcy of some kind. And there may have been some small benefit to that, but in retrospect and knowing what I now know, um, it would have been more helpful for me to say, I won't take care of any more sick children, dying children, uh, deceased children even, is how it could go down sometimes in the ICU. So uh, another idea that I had about this when I was talking about compulsive habits, oh gosh, this is a whole post of itself. I think I actually wrote about this a year or so ago, maybe even two years ago, um, somewhere in the blog, but I was talking about you know, this idea that when we go into a situation, we often get ourselves ready with a drink or with overeating or something that kind of takes our mind um, off of what's happening. So in other words, we prioritize our physical presence over our mental availability. And I just think that's a mistake. If we are so, um, so deep in grief and so raw and let's face it, we are, right? Forever. We're not even, I mean, we'll get better at re-entering society, but it's just so darn painful. And when we go into situations that we're physically present at, but our minds are somewhere else, or we're crying in the bathroom, or we're drinking too much, or you know, we're eating too much, or whatever the thing may be, we're not serving ourselves. We're not paving our he healing path. We're basically just stalling and actually at the same time, prioritizing somehow the needs of someone else, which when you're in grief is just not appropriate. And no one expects us to do that. And I think that's another big point I want to draw out here is that we can't expect anyone else to know how to set these boundaries for us and say, you won't do that. It's not good for you. We have to do that for ourselves because most of the time, as I said in the post, we have no idea what we need. So the idea that somehow we should turn over that judgment and opinion to someone other than ourselves is just way off base. And if I go back to the um, NICU job example, it's, it's spot on because nobody knew. I was the only one that knew that I was having that hard of a time with it. So how could someone else have, have, have intervened on my behalf when I wasn't even aware enough of what was going on to share it with anybody. So that's another thing is, you know, with the compulsive habits, and we all fall into loops, and we all have habits we like to improve and things like that. I'm not talking about the day to day, hey, I'd like to be a little more of this or a little more of that. What I'm saying is, if you find yourself going out into the world as someone other than yourself, through whatever mechanism, you need to take a look at that and see who you're really serving in that moment. Because again, we don't, we put that pressure on ourselves. And when people say, I'm so sorry for your loss, what can I do? We need to be able to answer that question. We want to be able to say, what you can do is give me some time, give me some space. Let me know you love me, but I can't get together right now. No, I don't want to go out to dinner and I'm not going to this party or this Thanksgiving dinner or whatever the thing might be. By building a sense of what we won't do and flexing our won't power muscles, we also help others to support us. So that's another great reason to try to understand what it is that we need and to ask for it because most times, particularly with our close circles of family and friends, they feel so helpless. They don't know what to do. And so they try and they try and they try 
And we go along with it because we don't want to disappoint anyone or we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. But I promise that when we're in deep grief, that is not the time that we need to prioritize others' experience over our own. So I just invite you to really think about this. And, you know, maybe there's something you want to decide that you won't ever do. Um, I also just as an asterisk want to add that just because you don't want to do something this year or this week or today doesn't mean that you won't want to do it tomorrow or next year or next week. These aren't, you know, monumental cutoffs from society, but when we're really grieving, um, we want to be careful about what we're exposing ourselves to and be vocal about it so that people can help support what we can best express as something that we think will help. Most times staying home doesn't necessarily help us either, but the idea is we need to set some limits on what we're willing and unwilling to participate in. So I hope this has landed, and if you have any questions or comments, of course, I love to hear from you at the blog, which is lisamcfarland.com. And until we meet again, let's do our best to stay present, to stay grateful, and to stay healing. And as always, I genuinely thank you for listening.